Hello and welcome. I'm Dr. Michael Thorpe. On behalf of CME Outfitters, I'd like to welcome you and thank you for joining us for today's CMEO briefcase entitled Choosing Treatment, Matching Needs to Therapy. Today's program is supported by an educational grant from Jazz Pharmaceuticals. I'm Professor of Neurology at the Albert Einstein College of Medicine and Director of the Sleep-Wake Disorder Center, Department of Neurology at the Montefiore Medical Center in the Bronx, New York. I'm also President of the New York State Society of Sleep Medicine and the past President of the Sleep Section of the Academy of Neurology. I'm delighted to be joined today by my distinguished colleague, Dr. R. Robert Auger. Robert, could you please introduce yourself? Hello, and thank you, Dr. Thorpe. I am uh, Dr. Robert Auger. I'm an associate professor of psychiatry and medicine at the Mayo Clinic College of Medicine in Rochester, Minnesota, and I am consultant in the uh, Mayo Center for Sleep Medicine, where I uh, perform all of my clinical duties. Good. Thank you, Robert. I'm delighted that you've joined me today for the, this discussion. I'm also pleased to introduce our patient advocate for today, Farah Hassan. Thank you, Dr. Thorpe. I am Farah Hassan. I'm a patient advocate and a person living with idiopathic hypersomnia. I'm also a member of the expert advisory board with Project Sleep and a speaker with their Rising Voices program, uh, and also a graduate scholar and fellow at the McMaster Education Research Innovation and Theory program. Thank you, Ms. Hassan. I'm pleased that you've both been able to join me for today's discussion. The goal of this activity is to empower learners to utilize the latest efficacy and safety data to integrate novel therapies into clinical practice to mitigate the impact of idiopathic hypersomnia. We're excited to have Ms. Hassan on today to tell us a bit about her experience as a patient with idiopathic hypersomnia. Ms. Hassan, feel free to tell us more about yourself when you're ready. Thanks, Dr. Thurby. I was diagnosed at 21, uh, but my story actually starts about 16 years before that. I have memories of uncontrollable sleepiness that go back as early as kindergarten, uh, persisted all throughout school. I could fall asleep just about anywhere uh, during a school assembly, while touring an art museum, even while standing in line, uh, which of course led to some pretty embarrassing situations. Despite that, um, I dismissed a lot of my concerns as just a consequence of staying up late and a lack of self-discipline being a teenager. Um, after high school, I went off to university, and at this point, my sleepiness was really starting to get out of hand. Um, no matter how interested I was in the course content, it became nearly impossible for me to keep my eyes open during lectures. Uh, my attempts at note-taking, which you can see on the slide here, were laughable. Uh, my pen would trail off the pages as I drifted off, turning my already messy handwriting into pretty much undecipherable glyphs. Uh, now, I know university students are notorious for having terrible sleep schedules, but what made it extra challenging for me um, was that I felt like my life was essentially controlled by my naps. Um, I've heard the term nap roulette be used, and it's quite fitting. Um, when I simply could not function anymore, I would tell myself that after a 20-minute nap, I would get back up and, you know, finish my assignment, only to wake up three or four hours later and then be in a panic over a looming deadline and all that lost time. 
eventually I started skipping class more frequently because honestly, it just felt like a waste to make my way to lecture, um, knowing that I wasn't really going to absorb much anyways. And then it was the summer while I was studying for the MCAT um, that I actually began to experience hallucinations. And that was when I finally realized that I couldn't keep brushing things off and that I really did need to see a doctor. So I got a referral for a sleep study, um, but the results were inconclusive and required further follow up. And so the sleep specialist I was seeing told me to really commit to getting eight hours of sleep every night for the next six months to see if that addressed the issue. Um, during this observation period, there was a nagging thought that kept poking me. I wondered, did I do this to myself? Um, I wondered if years of little routine and little discipline had actually led me to this point of hallucinating and, and struggling as much as I was. Um, and I was really terrified at the idea that all of this might have been preventable. But after six months, we realized that even getting eight hours of sleep every night didn't eliminate my symptoms. Um, and so I returned to the sleep specialist who diagnosed me with idiopathic hypersomnia um, and prescribed medication. I still remember feeling um, emotional as I walked out of his office with a prescription in hand, because finally, after years of feeling like a zombie, someone was telling me that there was treatment available. Um, I remember that first week of starting medication. All I did was I sat down and I finished my readings and my assignment and I did my homework. Um, I know it sounds like a pretty normal day, mundane even, but for me, it was everything. Um, treatment has made a world of difference. While I still need to take naps on a regular basis, I don't feel completely at the mercy of that game of nap roulette. Um, it's easier to maintain alertness for longer periods of time. And when I do nap, I'm usually much more able to set an alarm and actually wake up at a reasonable time, feeling refreshed and ready to get back to work. Um, when it comes to lectures, I might still drift off from time to time. Um, but with medication, again, I'm much more able to remain awake and focused. Um, and it doesn't quite feel as hopeless attending and trying as it used to before meds. Um, it's been a long and winding road, but after taking an extra year of undergraduate studies and shifting my plans away from med school, um, I'm now currently a graduate student doing um, research in anatomy education using virtual reality. Um, what I've learned is that every day is different, and treatment is, is still you know, far from perfect, but it has made it possible to do things that at one point in time I never really thought possible um, and it's made it, you know, easier to remain hopeful that I'll continue to learn and improve. So that's a little bit about my story. Thanks, Dr. Thorpe. I'll turn it back to you. Well, thank you very much for sharing your story with, with us. Uh, that was a very clear and uh, great uh, presentation on uh, what patients go through in terms of getting a diagnosis and getting to get a treatment uh, for this uh, condition. So now we're going to discuss a uh, patient case. Uh, this is a case of uh, Candace, a 30-year-old uh, female. And uh, she uh, had tiredness and fatigue and difficulty uh, with uh, waking in the morning. And uh, she eventually got uh, uh, sleep studies. She was actually sleeping up to 700 minutes uh, a night, which was uh, over 11 hours of sleep. 
And she had sleep studies that showed that on her multiple sleep latency tests that uh, she had a sleep latency of six minutes, so she fell asleep very quickly. And she had one sleep onset REM period. So she didn't have the two that would classify her as having uh, narcolepsy. So uh, she had some other conditions, such as hypertension, and she was on oral contraceptives. Her uh, situation is we're going to discuss in more detail as we go through this presentation. Uh, but first of all, uh, what I'd like to do is to ask your, the audience uh, uh, about Candice. And uh, knowing what you know there, that she's been diagnosed with idiopathic hypersomnia and she has those symptoms, what would you uh, consider might be the most optimal choice of therapy for her? Please look at the answers there and uh, make a selection. There are many medications that have been used for idiopathic hypersomnia, but uh, let's start uh, discussing some of them. Uh, Robert, could you tell us a little bit about modafinil and how this is used in idiopathic hypersomnia? With the exception of one of the medications we will discuss today, modafinil is not FDA approved for the treatment of IH or idiopathic hypersomnia, so use of it is off-label. The medication is dopaminergic. It's a weak inhibitor of dopamine reuptake. Dosing schedule is, is the same as would apply to narcolepsy, 200 to 400 milligrams daily. The adverse effects listed there would certainly coincide with my own practice as far as what patients report. Honestly, um, uh, perhaps particularly for this condition, I think patients most commonly complain of a lack of potency with the medication. Other clinical considerations, I think uh, the main one that comes to mind is, is the potential medication, medication interaction with hormonal contraceptives so that if you are prescribing two female patients, they, they really have to presume that the oral contraceptive is ineffective and, and barrier methods would have to be used in their stead. And as you can see from the slide, there are other potential medication interactions. Caution is, is warranted in patients with uh, psychiatric or uh, cardiovascular disease. And um, those are some of the salient um, uh, uh, points that I can make about modafinil. Good. Uh, thank you, Robert. That was a great overview. Uh, now, modafinil is uh, most typically used in the treatment of uh, narcolepsy, but there is some data with regards to modafinil and idiopathic hypersomnia. Can you tell us a little bit about that, Robert? Yes. So there were recent guidelines published by the American Academy of Sleep Medicine, and the study shown in this slide is is one of the studies that was reviewed. And the the first highlight there, you can see that in comparison with placebo, patients receiving modafinil for um, IH, and this is IH without long sleep time, experienced an improvement in the upward sleepiness scale score of, of six points, two at least according to those clinical practice guidelines, would be of clinical significance. So that's a, a significant change as compared to placebo. The second highlight of the slide concerns clinical global improvement. So clinician assessed overall improvement in the patient's clinical condition. And again, a one-point improvement would be considered clinically significant. So by that measure, um, modafinil was also deemed appropriate and successful, at least in this regard, for the treatment of IH. 
Very good. So uh, as you mentioned, the uh, modafinil is not FDA approved, but we use it off-label. And another medicine that we use off-label is uh, pitolicin. Can you tell us a little bit about pitolicin and idiopathic hypersomnia? Yes, thanks. Um, so again, also off-label for IH, there's phase three trials are um, expected to end in 2023. This medication has a novel mechanism of action. It has histaminergic action as opposed to antihistamines, which make uh, people um, sleepy. The phase three dosing is the same as narcolepsy, so we titrate to a maximal dosage of 35.6 milligrams daily. Um, you can see the adverse effects listed on the slide. I think the main clinical considerations would be, again, this potential interaction with hormonal contraceptives. You can also see that it may have some um, cardiac side effects. One of the nice things about this medication in comparison to some of the others that we'll discuss is that it's, it's not a controlled substance, so uh, those guidelines don't uh, apply. Good. Uh, thank you, uh, Robert. And uh, as you mentioned, this uh, medication is currently being investigated uh, in more detail, but there is a little bit of data, isn't there, from previous uh, small studies. Can you tell us a bit about that? Yes. So this is an, an interesting study where they actually okay. specifically looked at treatment refractory IH patients and trialed them on um, patolosan. You can see that the patients were divided into those with long sleep time and without long sleep time. If you look at the baseline upward sleeping scale score as compared to the upward sleeping scale score with patolosan, you can see that there are significant differences. Um, you see a change in three points. Significant difference in both groups, but I think the clinical significance really is associated with that long sleep time group. And you can see that there is a response rate of about one-third in both groups. Very good. So uh, let's talk now about the oxabates. There are three different oxabates, aren't there, that have been uh, FDA approved for narcolepsy. But uh, tell us uh, a little bit about uh, the first of those oxabates, the sodium oxabate. Right. So, uh, again, off-label um, and uh, only um, twice nightly has been studied in IH, twice nightly dosing, and we'll discuss some variations on that uh, as the talk progresses. So the mechanism of action is, is really unknown. This is the sodium salt of GHB. There are no specific dosing recommendations since it's used off-label, but in observational studies, the doses were a bit lower than those used for narcolepsy maximal dosage in the range of six grams. The adverse effects are identical to those you would see in association with the treatment of narcolepsy. I think the ones that really I notice when I use this medication are the, the nausea and dizziness. Other clinical considerations, I mentioned the, uh, the necessity of uh, twice nightly dosing, but there is also potential for abuse or, or misuse medication has very high sodium content. It is a CNS depressant, and there's particular caution as warranted in patients with heart failure, hypertension, or impaired renal function. Very good. And uh, tell us a little bit about the uh, clinical data now with sodium oxidase. So yes, as you can see on this slide, this is a, a, a slide treating patients with both IH and narcolepsy type 1. And I think well, first of all, you can see that the F4 sleepiness scale score change when patients are being 
treated with this medication that the results are favorable for both narcolepsy and idiopathic hypersomnia and very similar. I think one of the interesting things about this slide, one of the more problematic complaints and difficult complaints to treat among these patients is sleep inertia. And you can see that among the um, IH patients, there was quite a uh, favorable response on sleep inertia with uh, sodium oxabate. Very good. And uh, now we have uh, lower sodium oxabate, which is uh, FDA approved for idiopathic hypersomnia. Can you tell us about that, Robert, about this uh, medicine? Yes. So the fact, first of all, the fact that it's the sole medication at this juncture that's FDA approved for IH is is very helpful for a number of reasons, not, not least of which is insurance reimbursement. Uh, the mechanism of action, again, is unknown, as is the case with sodium oxabate. Twice nightly dosing is identical to that associated with narcolepsy, so maximum of nine grams total in divided doses. The studies that we'll share with you shortly also show that uh, once nightly titrated up to um, six grams demonstrates equal efficacy. Adverse effects, the same as I mentioned in association with sodium oxabate. Clinical considerations, also similar to what I described for sodium oxabate, but this is 92% less sodium than regular sodium oxabate, and, and there's no warnings that pertain to cardiovascular risks. Very good. Now, as this is the first uh, treatment uh, that's approved for idiopathic hypersomnia, of course, there were uh, significant uh, uh, research studies that were done uh, on a large number of patients for the first time. So can you tell us a bit about these studies? Yes. So I think the, the, the study design for this was very uh, interesting and very um, clinically relevant. So they enrolled about 150 patients that came into the study either on sodium oxabate only, that was actually the minority of patients, sodium oxabate plus an alerting agent, so a stimulant medication, and those patients had to be tolerant of the sodium oxabate going into the study. Some patients that were treatment naive and some patients that were on an alerting agent only. They then were titrated or switched over from sodium oxabate to low sodium oxabate, and the dosage was optimized according to clinical discretion. And again, the twice nightly doses, the max, the max dose was nine grams, once nightly dose, max dose of six grams. They then entered into a stable dose period for a, a two-week duration. And I have to note that the majority of patients in this trial were on the low sodium oxabate plus an alerting agent. So for the majority of patients, it was not used as monotherapy. They then um, were randomized to either continue to receive the low sodium oxabate or they were withdrawn and put on placebo. And then endpoints were investigated at two weeks. So if we look at the, the, the primary outcome from this study, was Epworth sleepiness scale improvement. And again, if you look at when subjects at the end of SDP, that is the, the period of time during which subjects were randomized and either randomized to placebo or continuation of the low sodium oxabate or LXB, 
you can see quite market improvements in the uh, F4 sleepiness scale score on the order of um, six points for those that remained on the uh, LXB or low sodium oxalate. So this study clearly showed that there was improvement in uh, alertness by the Epworth sleepiness scale uh, when the uh, medication was uh, withdrawn uh, compared with uh, placebo. So uh, it was an effective agent for idiopathic hypersomnia. Uh, so let's move on now and then ask uh, our audience another polling question. This is uh, regarding the sleep inertia symptoms. Sleep inertia is a major symptom in the idiopathic hypersomnia. But um, uh, let's ask the audience what they think the study showed with regard to uh, sleep inertia. So uh, look at the options there and choose what you think was seen during these uh, research studies with regard to sleep inertia. So the answer is A, in the double-blind randomized withdrawal period, the uh, uh, sleep inertia scale scores significantly worsened than those that went on to placebo compared with those that were on the uh, uh, low-sodium oxidate therapy. So it clearly showed an improvement in uh, sleep inertia. Now, when we, uh, could you tell us actually the data on that from the study, Robert? Same design as the study I just shared. So you see the the last week of the the dosing period, and then subjects are either randomized to placebo or continue or with continuation of the low sodium oxabate. This exploratory endpoint used a visual analog scale of sleep inertia, so it would range from zero, very easy to be alert upon awakening, to 100 very difficult. And if you look at the um, the differences there are quite marked. There's a difference of 22 points in favor of improved sleep inertia among those who took continued with the LXB as compared to those that were randomized to placebo. Okay, that was a great discussion about the various treatment options that we have for idi idiopathic hypersomnia. But let's get back to our patient Candace. Uh, Candace, as you remember, uh, complained about having a long sleep time and had sleep inertia. So um, when we uh, hear those symptoms and we know she has a diagnosis of idiopathic hypersomnia, Robert, what would you consider to be sort of the first line treatment out of those various options that you mentioned? I, I think given the sleep inertia complaint, low sodium oxalate needs to be a strong clinical consideration, if not essential. I think um, I think it's likely, given the data, we know that that will be used with an alerting agent. And I think that's where some of the discussions will need to take place regarding whether that's modafinil or patolasant and related to that considerations regarding cardiovascular risk, given the patient profile. She was also on a hormonal contraceptive. I think those are discussions that will need to take place with the patient it sounds like low sodium oxalate is going to be part of the regimen regardless of which alerting agent we choose. Right. Two of the medications that you mentioned earlier, the modafinil and patolicin, both of those will affect oral contraceptive agents. So it may not be ideal in this particular patient. And the good thing about the oxabate is that 
uh, it does tend to shorten nocturnal sleep as well in these patients with idiopathic hypersomnia that have long sleep time. And she was sleeping over 11 hours, so it's a long time. But uh, then improves that sleep inertia. So um, what do you think about the assessment uh, of this patient on an ongoing basis? Uh, do you have experience using, for example, the idiopathic hypersomnia severity scale? Would you think that would be useful to follow a patient like this? I really do. Um, the particularly the patients with long sleep time, there's been some discussion as to whether those patients should be divided into those with long sleep time and short sleep time after going back and forth in the International Classification of Sleep Disorders. I do think that the IHSS would be very uh, useful to track progress in this particular patient, particularly in a patient like this with idiopathic hypersomnia with long sleep time. There is some recent data that suggests that these patients are quite different than those with idiopathic hypersomnia with short sleep time, and there may even be some reclassification and further editions of the International Classification of Sleep Disorders to reflect those now known differences. The IHSS captures more than sleepiness. It captures sleep inertia and other troublesome complaints um, for the patients. It's a relatively short questionnaire you can do in the clinical setting. It's well validated and it can allow you to more accurately track progress in these patients. So, uh, Mr. Sun, would like to hear from you now about uh, Candice. Um, what what do you think uh, are the important issues for Candice going forward in terms of her treatment, and and what should she be looking for uh, as she uh, gets treatment for this disorder? Yeah, I mean, reflecting on my own experience with treatment, I think one of you know the things that required a lot of time and experimenting was understanding and learning, you know, how to time my medication and also how to nap effectively um, and make sure that those two things were, you know, working synergistically for me. Um, you know, I, I had some help with figuring out the timing for the meds, um, you know, from my sleep physician and some from my pharmacist. Um, but again, being able to couple that with naps, that piece actually took a lot of figuring out on my own. Um, so I, I think having, you know, a bit more of a guided approach and, um, and, you know, sort of advice on how to note observations and, uh, and make adjustments from that would have been helpful. Um, you know, it, it's things that I think a patient learns how to do on their own, just out of necessity and, and needing to function, but, um, you know, having that support right from the get-go. Um, and uh, I think the other piece was just understanding, you know, the, the strategies that I was employing prior to treatment, again, were things that figure out on your own to make, you know, daily living functional and then treatment comes in and it's incredible. Um, but then all of your coping mechanisms and strategies suddenly change. And I think navigating that piece again is something that, you know, um, my doctor um, or, you know, any clinician might be able to provide a little bit more feedback and, and guidance on. Well, thank you for that. that that's uh, very helpful. I mean, as clinicians and physicians, we tend to sort of focus on medication treatment, but you, you uh, emphasize the importance of uh, the behavioral components that are important in managing a condition like idiopathic hypersomnia. And uh, as uh, was mentioned, uh, you know, not uh, the medications don't always completely relieve the symptoms of idiopathic hypersomnia. 
So, uh, Robert, if this patient still has complaints about excessive sleepiness despite being on Oxidate, would you consider adding an, another medication? And if so, what might you add in for her treatment? You know, I think um, in her case, one could consider um, either the uh, modafinil or maybe even more promising, the uh, uh, patolisant, but it, it would require a discussion about an alternate means of contraception, right. namely uh, uh, barrier methods of contraception. Um, the other option would be to use one of the um, more traditional stimulants, um, but that those are you know, even less studied than the ones um, we mentioned, but certainly frequently used clinically. So that would be um, perhaps another discussion if the if the change of contraceptives was a deal breaker. Right. And another alternative might be uh, solreamphetol, uh, which uh, uh, doesn't affect the oral contraceptive agents. And uh, although it may be somewhat difficult to get both Oxabate and solreamphetol approved by the insurance carrier, but, right. but it could be another medication that could help improve her alertness. Well, I hope that... Uh, Today's CMEO briefcase program has helped everyone develop a foundation for diagnosing idiopathic hypersomnia. Now let's uh, summarize our SMART goals. These are specific, measurable, attainable, relevant, and timely. So identify both on-labeled and off-labeled treatments that are used for idiopathic hypersomnia. Customize the therapy for idiopathic hypersomnia based on the patient's characteristics the dosing, dose forms, efficacy and safety data, and other clinical considerations. Utilize the most recent clinical trial data, from, and particularly that from the new FDA-approved medication in the treatment decision uh, for these patients. And uh, include patients in their unique perspectives in shared decision-making. And we've heard from Ms. Hassan, how important it is to understand the patient's perspective in, uh, in administering treatment for these patients. So today's CMEO briefcase is part of part one of a three-part series of case-based activities that can be found on the Sleep Medicine Education Hub. I hope you'll check out the other two activities in the series. The Sleep Medicine Education Hub has these activities as well as many other on sleep disorder. Thank you to our audience and thank you today. And I'd like to thank uh, uh, Dr. Auger and Ms. Hassan. Thank you very much for your contributions and your excellent presentations. To receive CME and CE credit for this activity, participants must complete the post-test and evaluation online. Participants will be able to download and print their certificate immediately upon completion. So be safe, take care of yourselves so that you can provide the best care for your patients.